0: To be together, um, knowing that you can do anything with your weekend and you chose to come to church, give yourself a round of applause. That makes you an amazing person. Well done. And if you're just on this journey and trying to figure out who Jesus is, you know, God has put us in this community. So exciting just to be able to walk with folks. It's been cool, even in the, in the last service, folks just walk in off the street and say, Can I have a Bible? Yes, yes, you may. We're glad. It was the privilege to be a part of this journey with you no matter where you're at. We're in week three of a series called Teach Us to Pray. And what we're studying is an exchange between Jesus and his disciples where they saw Jesus, they saw how he was preaching, and they grew up in a culture where they would have been praying and they would have seen the parents pray. But these prayers were the kind of prayers where maybe they were mechanical or cold, and now they're seeing Jesus pray to the Father, and it's not mechanical, it's not cold, it's something different than what they had experienced. And so they look at Jesus after following with them, and they're like, can you teach us to pray Jesus like you have? And what I find so encouraging is that Jesus doesn't say, nope, I'm a big deal, you're a little peon. No, he he says, yeah, I can teach you how to do this. And and, and so what that shows us is that when it comes to prayer, you know, there's actually something that we have to learn there. This is something that can be taught, it can be learned, which means that it's possible to do it right and it's possible to do it wrong. And that's not exactly what we've been taught. We've been taught, hey, there's no wrong way to talk to God, but that feels nice, but it's just not biblical at all. So Jesus actually shows us, hey, this is how we pray. And what's fascinating is that... When he, when he taught us, we have a couple instances of this happening in Scripture, and, and they're not identical each time. And, and so what that shows us is that it's not meant to be like this memorized thing that we just do over and over again, kind of our mind checking out, but it's supposed to be a model that we follow. And so what we're doing is we're going through the model that Jesus gave us in what's called the Lord's Prayer, and looking at kind of each heading, each line that he gave us, just trying to understand it, and what we find is that we not only learn about prayer as we do this, but we actually learn a lot about our relationship with God. We learn a lot about our own selves as we look at what Jesus taught us, how we relate to God. It's just a really powerful, powerful thing to study, and so we're, we're pressing into this, and we're stepping through every line in this prayer. Last week, we talked about our Father. Many of you may even know know the prayer by that title, Our Father. When we come to God, Jesus says the starting place is not praying to God our King, even though He is. He's not God our Creator, even God our Friend, but He says when you approach God, you need to come from this understanding of God is our Father. And this was a huge deal to these ancient disciples because they had grown up as good Hebrew Jewish followers, understanding that God is transcendent. He is other. He is holy. But they, they didn't necessarily have a personal, warm relationship with God. They wouldn't have known him as Father. So that would have been scandalous. And so Jesus says, no, you, you approach God this way. In fact, one of the things that Jesus said is that when you pray, and when you come to God in my name, you have access to the Father. When we come in the name of Jesus In other words, Jesus did not just give us a model to follow in this life, and I don't know many people, whether or not you're a church person or not, that wouldn't look at who Jesus is, because this is what, mark my words, this is what's going to happen in the next four or five weeks. As we approach Easter, Time Magazine, some magazine will have some image of Jesus on the cover and say, who was this man? And he taught us all about what it means to protect the marginalized and and to help the poor, and we would all look at Jesus, and we would say, yeah, that's good, and we want to model ourselves off of that. For real, that's a good thing. I know anybody that wouldn't say that. But what Jesus actually said was way more scandalous than that, because what he got up is he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. He doesn't give us the option of just saying, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, Jesus is a nice teacher. He doesn't give us that option. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. This is an exclusive claim. But what he's saying is I've made a way to the Father through my perfect living, through my death and resurrection, when you believe, when you receive that, says that we have the right to be called the children of God. And what Jesus introduces is this idea of adoption. Adoption. That there's a way to the Father. And it's through being adopted. The most fundamental thing that as we pray, it has to come from that place. What Jesus said is that there's a way that we can approach God because it's not like a child, but we might approach God in a business relationship. And in a business relationship, I work and I earn a wage. Or I can approach as a child of God. That's a different kind of relationship. How do you know? Well, what do you do when your prayer is unanswered? Because if I believe that my relationship with God is a business thing and I've behaved myself, I've gone to church, I've I've done good things, I've been a good person, I'm not a bad person, I'm least not as bad as they are, I've done good things, therefore God owes me. Well, when you cry out to God and it doesn't go the way that you want, all of a sudden you know what you feel like? That you've been ripped off. They God hasn't followed through. I did my part of the deal. When's he going to come through? And when that happens, what we're showing is that we're actually approaching God like it's a business relationship and not like a family relationship. Jesus says we need to approach him like a, a family relationship. And, and what that means is that we can approach God and, and that we can even come when life is a little messy and when we're a mess and when we're in our own brokenness and when things don't make sense that we can approach God a lot like a child approaches their parents. And if you're a parent, you've had this happen to you where your kid is just really upset about something that happened in school or someone stole their block or their girlfriend broke up with them or whatever it is, and they're a hot mess, and they just show up kind of all booger-faced. And and we're invited into the throne room of God to come (laughs) booger-faced. And that's so meaningful to me because there's just times I don't, I can't even figure out how I feel about something. I can't get my life together. I feel like I'm a hot mess. And God says, you're, you're my stuff. Come on, come on, bring it in. Come over here on my lap. We can approach this throne, of grace to, uh, throne to receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need deeply, deeply powerful. That's what we talked about last week, in case you missed it. We're going to step on to the next kind of phrase here. And, and what I've learned after following Jesus for uh, approaching 40 years now, I accepted Jesus. I had a, a genuine faith decision for Him when I was just a little little kid. What I've learned is that the times in my life when I've approached some level of crisis, emergency, whether it's sin issues in my life or someone else's sin issues in their lives, or a circumstance that feels out of control, or I I am I start to feel that anxiety. You know, we talked about that a little bit ago. I don't know what's, I don't know what you're doing. I feel this anxiety that usually there are two challenges that I'm struggling with, whether or not I know it. And that is to really accept that God is good and that God is powerful. Those two things. Do I trust that God is really good? Does he really love me? Or maybe does he love me and my child? Does he love my child as much as I love my child? Can I really release My my child into God's hands, knowing that God loves them as much as I do. Do I trust that God is good? That's not so easy. But when Jesus teaches us, you can come to God. He's a father. He's a heavenly father. He's not broken and messed up like the dad that maybe you grew up with. He loves you. He is good. You can trust his heart. So we struggle with is God good? But the other thing that we struggle with is is God really powerful? Or, or am I more powerful than him? I can't release it to him because I want to have control, right? Like, so i got to manage this, and you know what helped me manage it? My stress and my anxiety. I'm going to crank that up, and if I really feel it, I'm going to bear down and control the outcome of this thing. Do I really trust God's good, and do I really trust that he is powerful? These first two phrases, I think, really get at that. We talk about God being Father. He is near. He is close. He is personal. He is imminent. And today we're going to talk about the bigness, the the, the grandness, the holiness of who God is. That not only is He good, but He is worthy. He is valuable. He is powerful. Okay, so let's jump into this text here together. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about it. Okay, Here's Matthew chapter six. I think the page number is six six zero in the yellow. Excuse me, the orange Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, please take it. It's our gift to you. I would rather have you use it and, and put your name on it, and it can get dirty because you read it so much, you know, and it's, it's just something you're, you're, you're in. We want you to be in God's Word. And I want to read together Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 through 13. Let's read this together. It'll be on the screen, or you can follow along in your own Bible. Here, let's go together. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. A little louder. You got it in you. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Okay, pray with me and then we're going to jump into God's word. Nothing I can say today that will change the hearts of anyone. It comes through your work inside of us kind of shining a flashlight in our hearts about what we believe or what we assume to be true, and that, that illumination that happens comes from your Spirit. Lord, Lord, so just would you come and do that work and help us to just make sense of this and to know, Lord, where we're out of alignment and, and how we need to kind of correct that. That's true from my own heart, too. Holy Spirit, I just pray for myself selfishly yeah, every week. Um that, that it wouldn't be with my words, but your words would be spoken. I pray this in the name of Jesus, according to his power, of character, and authority. Amen. Okay, so when Jesus says we pray, we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now the problem with that word is it's not a word that we use very often. I don't have people texting me, hey, what have you hallowed today? Like nobody, nobody says that, and because of that, it's actually, there's a lot of confusion around this word. I had a friend one time that he said for the longest time I thought that God's name was Howard because our Father who art in heaven. Howard be your name. I didn't know that God's name was Howie, you know? Uh, so, so there's this confusion because the word is just not one that we use very often. And so I want to I wanna try to answer three different questions with our time here today. to give all three of them to you and then we're going to break them down one at a time. The first one is this. What does it mean when we pray Hallowed be your name? Second one. Why would we pray, hallowed be your name? Third one, how is God's name hallowed? What does it mean, why would we pray that way, and then how is God's name hallowed? What, why, and how? So the first question that we're going to look at, what does it mean when we pray, hallowed be your name? Kind of what are we talking about? Hallowed be your name. Let's start and let's define what that word means, the word hallowed means, because we don't use it. It's kind of an old English word. It comes from a a Greek word, and that Greek word means to make holy, to sanctify, to honor it as holy, to set it apart, to treat something differently. And and some of you are probably thinking, well, that's great, but you just defined a word I don't understand with a bunch of other words I don't understand. So I want to maybe use two images here this morning that I think might help us understand it. Um, The first has to do with my dog. I have a dog that's seven months old. He's in a, a hard age right now, right? This is like, like if dogs could be in sixth grade. That's what it would be, okay? It's the age that he's in, it's a hard age. It's just a hard age, this is what it is. And so I, I, my kids are so kind because in the morning they get up before we do and they go downstairs and they let the dog out, it's wonderful. There's a gate at the bottom of our stairs and it's supposed to stay there because the dog likes to come up into our room. One morning, the kids let him out, so kind, so kind. And all of a sudden, I'm just in bed. It's beautiful outside. My bed is, is amazing. I love my bed. It's, it's a king-sized bed. My beautiful wife is right next to me. It's a sacred space. Sacred things happen there. And, and it's this white down comforter, beautiful. And I hear the dog go outside, and I hear the dog come back in, and then I hear, getting louder and louder, and I I hear that he's running up the stairs down the hallway, and he just does this wild spread eagle jump and lands on my bed, and before I could even open my eyes to see what had happened, I smelled what had happened. Because when he went outside, he had stepped in and rolled in poop. And now, he's on my bed. And I have a confession as your pastor. I, I kind of lost my sanctification right there in that moment. I, I wanted to turn that dog into a hat. And I was pushing, you know, this 75-pound dog. Get out of my bed! Horrible! You horrible! And, 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 and Jen's like, well, well, he's got poop all over him. And sure enough, I opened my eyes, and it's just brown all over the white comforter. It's, hor- it's a horrible dog. It's horrible I love him. He's amazing, right? But, but it's like you with your dirty paws have a place. And that place is the mat outside the door. That place, even when, you know, you need to be cleaned up, can be in, in the, in the mudroom. That's why we call it a mudroom, you know? And eventually you need to even be in the shower. But you know where you shouldn't be in my bed. Right? Like, this is a sacred space. This is a holy space. This should not be defiled by your dirty, poopy cloths, right? And yet, yet he did. It's a space that for us is set apart. It is sacred. It is other. You, you don't, as a smelly teenager, come run into my bed. You know, you don't do that this is a clean space. And so often, you know, we, we might read in the Old Testament, we might read about something that needs to be cleansed or purified. Why? Because God is holy and he is other. You don't let the poopy dog into the bed. It's set apart. It's something different. That, that's a part of what it means to, to say that something is sanctified. To sanctify means to wash, to treat it as holy, to treat it as other. Uh, in a, another picture that, that makes me think about this, this holy concept of hollow, what we would hollow, and say this is of value to us. Um, I used a drum set illustration last week, and I used another one this week. About 15 years ago, I had a friend that was moving and said I need to downsize, and I'd like to give you a bunch of boxes of Thomas the Train Wood sets. I know, they're very expensive. And so I'm like, yes, I will help you. And so I went up into his attic, and I was moving these boxes, and, and I saw in the corner of this attic was a drum set piled into the corner, and I said, tell me about the drum set, because I knew he was trying to downsize, right? I said, mm, maybe I can help you here. So I said, tell me about the drum set, and he goes, oh, I bought it from a school for $100. I said, I'll give you $150. And he said, I would give it to you for free, and I said, well, it's Okay. Because what I knew that he didn't know is that this was a highly collectible Ludwig vista kit from the 70s. And made out of acrylic cells, had all the symbols. All, he didn't even know what he had. It was sitting in the corner of his attic. And, and he said, yeah, I'll sell it to you for free. i would give it to you for free. And I was just like, it's worth $150. i would pay double, triple that. Because I knew that it was worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And so I I just could not. It's like, you remember have that happen where you're scoring a big deal and you're just trying to not let it show up on your face? Because then they would know, right? And so I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, and so I call my wife like, you won't believe I just bought a drum set for $150. We don't have $150 and you don't need another drum set. And I'm like, you don't understand. This is worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And so I load it up in my car and I'm giddy with delight and I take it home and I show my wife and she goes, it's ugly. And I said, I, it's, you don't understand what this is worth. This, this is something of value. Listen, when you find something that's valuable, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like someone who found a treasure in a field, and they, they sold everything just to buy the field because the treasure is so valuable to them. And they're kind of holding up. It's like, man, i got to tell somebody. i got to tell somebody. And I tell the story to other drummers. Like, you won't believe this deal. I scored. This is a buy of a lifetime. Thank you, Jesus. Right? I tell people about it. Why? Because this thing was unlike any drum set I had ever had. It was worth more than any drum set that I had ever had. When you find it, you set it apart. You say, this is valuable. This, this is not something that you just leave in the attic. You don't even know what you have. And Jesus is saying, when we pray, I want you to pray follow it, and you're saying the name of God is something that is the most treasured the most praiseworthy. I want you to set it apart. I don't want you to profane it. I don't want you to profane the name of God. Why do we as Christians say that like, don't use God's name in vain? Why would we say that? And what does that mean? Well, that would be any time we take the name of God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son, and we would use it in a way that would do, degrade it, that would dishonor it, right? So, if the dog jumps on the bed and I say, Jesus Christ, and I'm not honoring the name of Jesus, how would you feel if I said, oh, Sam, oh, Jen, oh, Coda, and I used your name to represent something bad that had happened in my life, would that feel good? No. In fact, what I've said to my kids is they do this, like if something goes wrong in the house, you know, they'll spill something, and there's something they need Mom. <laughs> Don't use your mom's name and train that way. Why is it any time bad, something bad happens, that's when you say mom's name? No! Revere it! Honor it! Why would we do anything less? With the name of God. So, <laughs> dearest mother, will you come help me? <laughs> Says my child. Thank you, son. Yes. So what's behind the name thing? Well, here's what we know. We know that a name is more than just a collection of syllables or letters on a page. But it actually represents the fullness of their personhood behind that. So when I say your name, when I say my name, it's not just a collection of sounds. I'm actually evoking, for better or for worse, all of the character traits, all of the qualities, all of the values that represent that person. This happens with all sorts of names, right? So I'm going to say a name, for better or for worse, if I say the name Donald Trump, some of you will boo, some of you will cheer. That's not the point. The point is his name is more than just a collection of syllables. It actually represents his values, his actions, his behaviors, in some cases his policies, his history, uh, what he represents, right? It, It means something. If I say the word Osama Bin Laden, it means something. If I say the word Charlie Sheen or Taylor Swift or... Michael Jackson or LeBron James. It's not just their collection of sound. It's actually what they represent. That's true with any name. That's why for, for parents, and you're thinking about naming your child, there are just some names that are not an option. Right? Because you knew a Spencer one time, and it didn't go well. I knew a Brittany one time, and she treats you well, If she was offstandish or had bad breath, and you're just like, nothing wrong with the name, there's good Brittany's out there, I just can't, I just can't do that, right? I met, I met a family one time, and I said, oh, tell me your daughter's name, and they say, well, my daughter's name is Isis. I'm like, oh, that's so unfortunate. It was a beautiful, phonetic-sounding name, and, and then the world happened. You know, and there's something attached to it, there's meaning behind all of that. Now, we we can have bad experiences. We can have positives. There's something attached to that name. So when we say, "God, hollow would be your name," what we're saying is, "God, we want your not just your name, but the character traits and the attributes and what you represent." and your actions and the things that you love and the things that you value, we want that to be set apart. We want it to be revered. We want your personhood to be represented and to be supremely valued, to be the most precious thing. We're not going to profane it. We're not going to dirty it up. We're not going to misuse it. We're going to say, God, what you represent, your kingdom is of the greatest value and it should not be relished to the corner of the attic. It is worth celebrating. It is worth elevating. God, we want your name to be awesome. So we would say, God, in my life, would your name be revered as awesome? Would you be the most valuable, the most praised? In our church, God, you're more, you're more valuable. You're more valuable than finishing the renovations on the building. God, you're more valuable in our in our family than, than that vacation home. You're more worthy than the new car. God, you and what you represent in your kingdom are more worthwhile than my child doing back-to-back volleyball tournaments on the weekend. God, in our world, would you be seen as more awesome, more valuable than all of those things? That leads us to the second question. Why would we pray that God's name would be hallowed? Why does Jesus look at us and say, Hallowed be your name. Whether or not you know it, you hollow something. We all hollow things. Whether or not you're aware of it, we all have something that we hold as supremely valuable. And the thing, the question is not whether or not you do it, it's what to you is the most valuable thing in your, in your life. What is the thing that you would say this is the most supremely valuable, the thing I most desire? If I'm going to seek after this. I'm going to search this. If I can attain this, that's what my life is about. Everything else in my life is worth sacrificing for this one thing. We all have that. We all have that. Our hearts are bent to hollow something. Whether or not you're a Christ follower or not, we hollow something. Something sits in the seat of hollowness and supreme work in your life. And it might be wealth, It might be family, it might be popularity, it might be pleasure, it might be your sexual identity. It could even be your kids. It could be the approval of a certain group of people. It might even be ministry. It might be good things. It might be exercise and diet. It might be something that's a good thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. It becomes something that you hollow, something that you are worshiping. And the question I just want to ask you is, what is that for you? What is that thing that, that, is, that sits on the seat of the most hollow thing in your life? And I want to present you with just a couple questions that you can self-evaluate and maybe even invite you that as you walk or drive home today, as you're in life group later this afternoon, you can just talk about this, right? This would be fodder for conversation here. This is the first question I want you to think about. What do I believe that makes, the mo- that makes me the most valuable or gives me the most worth? What makes me worth something to myself or to others? Is it the, mon- or the amount of money that I have? It's the most valuable to me. I know what, it like, what it's like to be poor. I hate that feeling. I feel like I can be in charge of things and control of things when I have money. Money defines me. That's the thing that I hold up of supreme worth. Maybe it's how successful you are. Maybe it's having perfect kids that just kind of fall into line like the Von Trapp family singers. And there's this image of my family. And I'm a mom, and I've got these kids figured out, and we've got a great schedule, and they're always locked step. This, this is who I am. What makes you seen as valuable to other people? Maybe it's your contribution for how well you sing, or how you do art, or how kind of athlete you are. What are those things that if you don't have them, all of a sudden your heart starts to feel anxiety and crisis starts to boil up a little bit. In fact, you say, if I don't have music, I don't know what I am. If I don't have my business, my construction business, if I don't don't have this craft, if I don't have my, I don't know who I am, if that's gone, that might be something that you hollow. If you're most wrapped up in your success and the thought of, like, if I'm not successful, then people are going to not love me. They're going to think less of me, cause you to lose your identity. Maybe maybe it's that you're the funny one, you know, and you've just got the sense of you. Maybe it's that you're the attractive one. Maybe you're like me and you're the whole package, you know, and that's just a part of who you are. What are those things that you would say, my life would be unbearable if that wasn't in there? What is that thing? That might be the thing that you follow the most. And you know what, what my wife and I have discovered when it comes to parenting is you have behaviors you want your kids to exemplify. And when they don't do that, you think, well, there needs to be some sort of consequence in their life. You're going to take something away from them. So that might be their iPad or their phone or their Xbox. But what we found is very interesting what happens in the heart of our children. And I think it happens in our own hearts as well. Here's what we've said to them. If you misbehave, the thing that has leverage against your heart is the thing that you most value in your world. And it's this Xbox. So if you behave this way, I'm gonna take that away. You know what that's done in my my child's heart? So this is the most valuable thing for you. It is the rudder of your heart and we will control you through it. All we've done is elevate it as an idol in their heart and in their lives. I think it happens to us the same way. Second question that helps us understand what we might hollow. What gets the priority of my time, money, and attention? If you have extra time, if you have extra money, if you have extra mental margin, what is the thing that you make sure that you plug into that? Like you might say, I I don't always have money for other things, but I'm going to make sure that I have money for this game of golf. I'm going to make sure that we have money for this vacation. I don't always have time, but you know what? I'm going to lose some sleep. I'm going to cut some corners in other areas so that I can do my hobby. What is that thing? I think this is an important question because it's easy to say, hey, we value something, but you know what never lies? Our time, our treasure, and our mental energy into something. I'm just going to speak for me and my family. But one of the reasons that we choose to give the kingdom purposes is because what that does is I know in my heart I have a real temptation to trust in money. I just do. And there was a time when I said, no, God, I cannot trust you by, by giving you any of this. Instead, what I'm saying is, God, you know what? I don't want that to be the most hollow thing. I'm going to voluntarily choose to say no to this and to give it to your kingdom purposes, not so, not so that I'm seen as a good person, but because I don't want that to sit on the seat of, of, of hollowness in my own heart. It's a way that we do that. What do you find as most su- supremely valuable? And then, here's another question. Where do you struggle with bitterness? Where do you struggle with bitterness? Um, J.D. Greer is a pastor, and he wrote a book called The Gospel, and he wrote something that I've argued with. Have you ever read a book, or like heard someone, and they say something, and you kind of start to argue with them in your head? Like, that can't be true. That's not true, that's not true. And I started arguing with him. This is what he said. He says, if you want to know what you hollow, look at your bitterness. If you want to know what your idols are, that was the language he used, look at your bitterness. I said, that's not true. That's not true. And I said, okay, let me think about this. Where do I struggle the most with bitterness? You know what it was for me? I struggled in areas where there was ministry involved. Someone got in the way of it. Someone threatened it. I just couldn't forgive them. And I said, oh, snap. He's right. That bitterness, that slowness to forgive that I can't really let go of this was tied to an idol in my heart. What is what is that thing for you? You know, you're, it's kind of like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. You know, Uncle Rico is just like, has the seed of bitterness from the past where he's living in high school and he's like, if I could just go back to high school and they would put, coach would put me in, I would win state and everything would be different and I wouldn't be living in a van out in the field. Right? And so there's like this constant bitterness that's there. There's this there's this seed of like, why is it mom and dad? You know, I'm bitter at my sister because of my brother because they had this addiction thing going on and mom and dad tried to like just always bail them out and and help them get to vacation. I did the right thing. I did it the right way. And, and so there's this bitterness there and you start to pull on that string just a little bit and you start to realize, hey, my bitterness came from I actually want the approval of my parents. I want to be seen as. I did it right more than anything. That's the thing that I supremely value. And so there's bitterness there. I've got this mild taste of bitterness because you know what? I was taught that the best thing is to advance my career and I want to do that, but now these kids come along and I love them and they're amazing and cute and cuddly and all that stuff, but I'm sitting here cleaning Cheerios out of the couch and my friends are moving their career forward and my husband, you know, he gets to move forward and I just kind of feel like, well, who am I? And and it's not in your face, it's not all the time, but it's the seed of bitterness. You know, that might be showing you something that you hollow. Pay attention to that tension. It's a flag on the field. Pull on that thread. Say, God, help me to see what I'm hollowing. Question number four, what do I worry about? What do I pray about the most? If you want to know what you hollow, one of the ways to see that is by looking at what you pray for the most. What is the thing you find yourself thinking about, even praying about all the time? For example, you know, you might be worried about the safety of your kids. You're worried about them getting abducted by aliens. And so when they ride their bike, they wear not just a helmet, but the shoulder plaids and like a football outfit and knee pads and the wrist guards and everything. And you just say, you know what, it's worth whatever it takes to buy the minivan that's got the five-star rating. And so we'll unload $60,000 on this minivan, whatever it takes. That's the thing that you worry about the most. And so you pray for it, God. We need this. God, help me to get this. That's an indication of what you might hollow. And this sounds a little a little paradoxical because you're like, well, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to pray? Are we supposed to pray for the things that we want? Absolutely, absolutely. Philippians tells us, don't be anxious. But in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving and gratitude in your heart, present your requests before God, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something that's tricky that can happen if you're a praying person, and that's this. That you're praying and you're thinking you're coming to God asking to hollow His name, but in reality, you're really asking God to give you what you most hollow. And we, we focus on the gifts instead of the gift giver. God, this is what I most value. And so so if you're a praying person, I want you to pay attention to how you pray because it can reveal what you hollow the most. And if you find that the only time that you pray is when like you're up, you know, you've got this job thing going on. The only time you pray is when you when you want to make the team or when you have this deal that's coming up. It can reveal that maybe you're focusing more on the gift than you are the gift giver. You're not saying, God, hollow be your name. It's saying, God, give me the thing that I most hollow. So Jesus says, listen, when you pray, hollow be your name, God, hollow be your name. The truth is, we all hollow something. And most of the time, when we pray, are we really saying, God, we want to hollow your name? God, we want you to be lifted. God, you are the most valuable. God, you are worthy of this. Or are we saying, this is the thing that I most want in my life? This is an issue adoration. You know what I most adore in this world? I know I love my kids. They're wonderful. But I never committed to death to we part to them. I adore my wife. She's everything to me. You know what the problem is? Is that when we adore something like that, when they sit on the seat of hollowness in our lives, and it can be a very good thing, the problem is the weight of our soul is bearing down on them. And we are giving the expectation to them that they would be God to us and they cannot possibly bear the weight of that. And what I've seen in my life is all of the anxieties that get stirred up, all of the problems, all of the petitions, they're all driven by issues of adoration. God just helped me to get out of this mess. God just helped us to come through. God fixed this problem. And when we follow things that can't possibly bear the weight of our souls, you know what's going to happen? Inevitably, either they're going to collapse under the weight of that. They can't. My wife cannot be God to me. She cannot satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. She cannot be that person. Either she's going to collapse under the weight of that, or we're going to collapse under the weight of trying to control the situation and get the way that we want it to be. And when you follow something, when you adore something, it affects everything in your life. And this is what God is saying through Jesus. He's saying, listen, his love for you says this, that, that you can't put the weight of your adoration on something that is sure to fail because it's just going to hurt you. Listen, God does not need you to stoke his heavenly ego. The rocks and the hills will cry out. He does not need us to worship him here in this place. Do you know why we do it? Because we need to worship him in this place. I need to do this because my heart gets off. That's why we worship him. That's why he wants us to worship him. Not because he's insecure. Not at all. But he knows that our souls will most be satisfied when they're satisfied in him. Because he is the only one that is objectively, supremely worthy of being hollowed in your life. The only one. And if you take anything else and you hollow it above God, we're setting ourselves up for a life of frustration and confusion and disillusionment because those things will never fulfill us the way that God wants to fulfill us. Because there's nothing that's objectively, supremely worthy of being hollowed. This this is why I love this in the Psalms. You need to spend time in the Psalms. If you don't know where to start, spend time in the Psalms because this is what the psalmist do. The psalmist say, listen, I've been beat up through the week, and this is what I need to declare to my own heart. This is what he says, Psalm 145, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. You are objectively God, greater than all of these things. And David in this psalm is speaking to his heart. He's not listening to it. And most of the time when you and I deal with the anxieties of our life and we press into prayer, we just start listening to our own heart and we spin it up and we spin it up and we spin it up. And there's anxiety there. Listen, we need to speak to our heart. That's why we start. We say, "Mm, I'll praise in the morning. I'll praise in the sunset. I'm going to praise when it's cloudy. I'm going to praise when it's good. I'm going to praise when it's not. God, you are worthy of it. God, you are worthy of it. We tell our hearts that even when We say, I don't know how much I believe it, but I'm going to choose right now. I'm going to choose right now. We need to speak to hearts as much as we listen to it. That God is supremely worthy. This is going to seem a little abstract, but we're a part of a network of churches. We have churches in in Haiti, and in Haiti right now, it's a really dark place. There's malnourishment. There's all sorts of challenges in Haiti. And we have brothers and sisters on the ground that are working there to help meet the needs of people in Haiti. And one of the things they found is in this malnourishment, they learned of a tree that grows in India and it's called the Moringa tree. It thrives in that kind of environment. Here's a picture of the Moringa tree. It grows 10 feet a year. It turns out to be an amazing tree. It grows 10 feet a year. It thrives in that kind of environment. Its leaves contain seven times the amount of vitamin C as an orange, four times the amount of vitamin A as carrots, four times the amount of calcium as milk, three times the potassium of bananas, times the protein of yogurt and the oil of the leaves can be ground up and used for fuel. And it can be used, the seeds can be used to clarify water. And you hear that and you're like, this is a great tree. Like it's objectively a good tree. They said that they're having the hardest times getting patients to plant the trees. And when you ask them why, they said it's because the witch doctors are telling them it's not a good tree to plant. And so they have to spend all of this Uh, all this energy to say, sit about and say, no, listen, you need these trees. These are good trees. This is going to save your children. This is going to feed you. You need this tree. This isn't a subjective thing. This isn't like that tree is good for you, you know, but I'll just do my own thing. Like, no, you need this tree. And the missionaries said they spend so much time trying to awaken them to the realities of how good this thing is in their life. So what? When it comes to God, and we say hallowed be your name. Why would we pray that? We would say objectively, God is the only one worthy to sit in that seat of hollowedness in our lives. Listen, if you chase after anything else, you're spiritually going to be malnourished. You're going to be starved. The last question is this, is how? How is God's name hallowed? How is God's name hallowed? Probably the most practical one. One commenter said that although when we read this phrase, hallowed be your name, we think of it as a declaration. We think of it as a proclaiming something to be true. This commenter said that fundamentally it's petitioning God to do something. He put it this way These are not declarations or acclamations, they are requests. In fact, they are called a third person imperative. This is asking God to do something. And when we pray, God, hallowed be your name, Some of you are thinking, well, why should we ask him to do that? Isn't he already supremely worthwhile? Are we asking him to make himself more worthwhile? No, what we're asking is, God, would you move in my life in such a way that you would bring that to bear? That you would bring more glory and more praise and more adoration? And we're fundamentally saying, God, in my life, in my church, in my family, in this community, God, would you make your name huge? Would you be set apart, God? I'm asking you to embolden me fundamentally to represent you well. God, I want you to use me to hallow your name, and so you would say this. Listen, I know when I go to work, I know that they know that I'm a Christ follower. I don't have it perfect, but listen, when I step into that place, I'm just going to say, God, there's going to be temptations today, and I. I don't want to act in a way that would tarnish your name because I know that I represent you. Help me, God. Help me to do that. Before you walk into the Motor Vehicle Administration, you're praying real hard, God, help me to represent you really well. This is how it played out for me this week. Okay, so my wife said, hey, I want you to get one of those watches that tracks your heart rate. I said, okay. And so I found one on Facebook Marketplace and that day I was coming over here to paint. And so I was wearing cruddy shoes. My jeans were all ripped up. I had the paint shirt on. I had a slouchy hat on, so my hair is just a mess, right? And and I, and I, and I realized, um, okay, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to try to buy this watch from this person, and I don't even look like this. I'm driving the church's white van, and it's got rust all over it. I've literally had people stop me at the drive through and say, oh, that's like a kidnapper van. <laughs> I for free. I <laughs> do oh, it's wonderful. Right? I love it. And it's great. So we're dri- I'm, I'm driving up and I'm realizing, I'm looking at myself going, they're going to think I'm not trustworthy. And so I, I walk up and I say, oh gosh, thanks for meeting with me. I'm sorry I look like this. I'm getting ready to go paint at my church <laughs> because that will make people think that I'm trustworthy, right? Oh, what church do you go to? Oh, it's on the corner of Park and Ninth Avenue. I'm a the pastor there. Okay, I buy the watch, come here and I try to like set it up with my account. But it's locked to their account. So I'm like, oh man, what are these people trying to like they're trying to steal my money, you know, what, I had contact them? I said, This is what happened and I had a real temptation at moment to be like, They're trying to steal my money and hear me roar and to ogre my way through that. Then I thought to myself, wait a minute. I said that I'm a Christ follower. And I didn't just say that I'm a Christ follower, I said I represent this church. And I didn't just say that I represent this church. I'm the pastor, <laughs> right. And so it's like, wait a minute, God, I'm stepping in this situation. Give me, give me grace. Give me a gentleness that allows me to interact with these people in such a way that when they look at me, when they experience me, I might look like this, you know? But they're going to experience a gentle heart. And God empowered me to do that. That's what we're asking for. We're asking, God, would you bring that about in my life? so that every relationship, every interaction, every interaction with that stupid neighbor who's playing their music too loud and doesn't respect my whatever, you know, with every child that's walking away from you and your life and you're just in agony, God, would you help me to respond in such a way that represents you well? That's what we're proud of. And this is so important, listen guys, because Jesus puts it in there, and he doesn't say pray it once in a while, but every time we pray, We have to start from this posture, God hallowed be your name. Why? Why? Because here's what happens in our lives. People wrong us, people hurt us, our heart gets knocked around, and we go out of tune. So, um, Ella, I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to do this with your guitar here, okay? But here's what happens with a guitar. It might be perfectly in tune, but you, you end up putting it in and out of the case a couple times, the temperature changes, and what happens is, Things go to go out of tune, right? There it goes. So, and, and all of a sudden, Ella's like, Are you kidding me? You just did that with my guitar. And now, when you go to strum, right? How's that sound? Yeah. And you see, but he says it sounds good. Here's the deal I know instantly that it's out of tune. Why? Because I know what in tune sounds like. And the more time I spend with a tuned guitar, I've been playing since fifth grade. I've been playing for a really long time. Ask the band, we'll, we'll, we'll be in the middle of playing. I'll go, Ella, your B strings out, Fix it. So you know what I do? Here, Ella, you can start fixing it because I know you gotta play, Sorry. So you know what I do, before I get to rehearsal, I tune my guitar. Before I come up here to lead you guys, I tune my guitar. In between the worship sets, I tune my guitar. Why? Because it got bumped. It got stumbled a little too hard. The temperature changed. It went in and out of its case. In between songs, do you know what I do? I tune my guitar. In the middle of the song, you watch. There'll be times where I'll come and I'll because I'll hear it's off just a little bit. And it, and it needs to be tightened back up. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Follow something else in my life. Here's my heart, Lord. you can steal it? Steal it for your courts above. Tune my heart to sing your praise. God, right now I am so overwhelmed by this thing in my life and I can't get past it, but you are greater and you are stronger. Tune me back to that. And when I don't know what to do with my child, when I don't know what to do with my spouse, when I don't know what to do with my finances, when I feel so overwhelmed, God, I want to be reminded that you are supremely worthy. You are good. Tune my heart to that, God. But I feel like I do. Really like How do you know what you've been hollowing? How do you know what's most supremely worthwhile for you? What has a grip on your heart? What do you think, God? I can't do without this. And here's the invitation this morning, and I'm going to ask my, my, my elder John to close out our communion worship. But what I want to ask you. but I just want to ask that all of us just close our eyes. And and God gave me a word last night when I was thinking about what to do to close this up, and and he put the word, um, out of his word, confession and repentance. That when his his word confronts us, and it has this one, it's confronted me. Guys, I know where my heart follows. It's ministry. God, better or worse. And so, when when God reveals that, what we need to do is contest. this isn't a feely thing. This isn't. You can break down tears if you want to, but it doesn't have to be that. It's just saying, God, I agree. I see it. I agree. I want to turn the other direction and ask Him for help. That's it. I'm out of alignment. I need to be tuned. If I play a chord right now, if I try to pray, it's going to be out of tune. Got two. that you're good and you know that so just, you So know, just spend just 30 seconds with you, whatever God revealed to you, it might take time, that's fine, this next song is meant to be time for you just to do business with God, would you just agree with God, this is what I call it. I Repent, it. Yes.